0: Hi, this is John and today I'm looking at the book of Ephesians. There's only 6 chapters. Ephesians 1 through 6. And in the Religion 211 manual, and I shouldn't call it that, in the New Testament Student manual and you have this on your phone. If you have the library, you just go to adults and then young adults and then institute and manuals. It has a nice outline of all 6 chapters and Kind of a an overview. So this is what it says on page four hundred and twenty-two. It says Ephesians 1:1 1, 1 through 416. So it breaks it up into 1 through 4, part of 4, and then the last half of 4 through 6. 1 through 4. Paul wrote of the saints' foreordination to receive the gospel, sealing by the Holy Spirit of promise, salvation by grace. The unifying of Gentile and Jewish saints in the church, the purpose of the church and the church's organization upon a foundation of prophets and apostles, with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. God will gather all things together in Christ in the dispensation of the fullness of times. So that's chapters one through four and a half, the second half of four through six. Paul encouraged the saints to apply true doctrine to their daily lives. He encouraged them to put off the old man, their former sins, in other words, to put on Christ. He gave counsel to wives, husbands, children, parents, servants, masters, and congregations. He encouraged saints to put on the whole armor of God. So there are some well-known kind of metaphors that we see here. Probably in that first part, we all have probably heard lessons about the church being built upon a foundation of apostles and prophets and in the second half, the armor of God. That first half, I actually used to do a lesson, especially for youth, with kind of building a church with a cornerstone and everything, and then kind of trying to demonstrate the apostasy, which we will talk about a little bit when we get to 2 Thessalonians. But anyway, let's look at a couple of things in chapter 1 of Ephesians. The one verse I wanted to give a shout-out to is verse 9 of chapter 1. Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself. These books use the word mystery a few times in Ephesians. But here's this idea of having made known unto us the mystery. So it's not a mystery anymore. God is not keeping secrets. He's try, He wants to tell us everything. And he asks us to to knock and to ask and to seek. And so here, I like that idea. I'm going to tell you what's going on here. When we go to Ephesians chapter 2, I remember this verse being quoted on anti-Mormon literature, what we used to call that. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are ye saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And the idea was that, in their view, those who wrote these anti-pamphlets, we all think we're saved by the, by, simply by the grace of Christ, by grace alone, by His graciousness, by, his, by our faith in Him, and that's it. And we emphasize in our church works, and we do. It's part of our theology. We talk about striving, we talk about trying, we we sing, I'm trying to be like Jesus. We are trying to be better people, but is that what saves us, or is coming to Christ and being baptized what saves us? So, you know, that's been an ongoing debate for a long time. I like what Dr. Robert Millett says, that our works are necessary, but they're not sufficient. That's a good way to say it at the end of the Book of Mormon in Moroni 10, come unto Christ, be perfected in him, then is his grace sufficient. So he's going to remake us into something better. And one of the things that I've noticed when Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is quoted to us, they don't ever seem to quote verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained, that we should walk in them. What's the them? Well, I think it's good works. We're supposed to walk in good works. We are supposed to do good works. Do the good works save us? Well, it sounds like the formula for salvation is coming to Christ and repenting and being baptized and receiving the ordinances. And uh, some might say, oh, those ordinances, those are works. If you have to do anything, that's, that's a work. If you have to go to the temple, that's a work. Well, I try to do those things because I believe the Savior asked me to. But He is the Savior. The temple is not the Savior. Going on a mission is not the Savior. Me doing my ministering is not the Savior. The Savior is the Savior. So I do those good works because I've come to Christ, and now I'm trying to become like Him. But I know that I can't possibly earn my salvation. Maybe just a good way to put a cap on this, is to think of King Benjamin's speech in the Book of Mormon where he said, Are we not all beggars? And it's true. We are in the position of a beggar when it comes to our salvation. We cannot earn it. We can only beg for the Lord to save us through his grace so that all makes sense to me i used to think that verse was problematic i don't anymore of course we're saved by grace there's no other way we, he did for us what we cannot do for ourselves so maybe that's enough on that something i thought was kind of cool in ephesians 2 verse 14 now let's start in 13 but now christ jesus ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of christ for he is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. And we may think, what's this middle wall of partition between us? Well, I'm glad you asked. This is one of those places where Paul is using an actual physical object that they might be familiar with and making a spiritual metaphor out of it. So in your New Testament manual on page 426, it says this, The temple in Jerusalem contained several courts or areas, and only certain types of people could enter each court. Gentiles were permitted to ascend the Temple Mount and enter the outer court called the Court of the Gentiles. The inner courts of the temple, however, were shielded from Gentile access by a special partition or wall that stood about one meter high. If a Gentile passed beyond this wall, he could be put to death. Archaeologists have discovered two of the marble blocks that made up this barrier, and they contain inscriptions in Greek and Latin that read quote, No foreigner is to pass beyond the barriers surrounding the sanctuary. Whoever is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his death, which will follow. And that's quoting from a book called Jesus Christ in the World of the New Testament by Richard Holdzapfel and Eric Huntsman on page 160. Anyway, Continuing, in Ephesians two twelve through 19 Paul spoke about the wall of partition, meaning the spiritual barrier that separated Jews from Gentiles and also separated Gentiles from God. These and all other barriers were removed by the atonement of Jesus Christ. Gentiles who accepted the gospel were no longer to be regarded as aliens, strangers, and foreigners. They were now the household of God, part of God's covenant people. By accepting the gospel of Jesus Christ through faith, repentance, baptism, and the gift of the Holy Ghost, both Jewish and Gentile members of the church had access to God. So doesn't that make much more sense? Or or I, I love it when you can find something like that that is a physical thing. He hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. And there literally was a middle wall like that. Now, when we go to three... Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17 through 19, I got kind of excited about this. Years ago, I wrote a talk called Weed Your Brain, Grow Your Testimony. And I just kind of used Jesus's agricultural metaphor of the soil, the four different types of soil in Matthew 13. And I noticed that Jesus is talking about our personal heart, where our heart is. Is its it Full of thorns? Is it shallow? Is it good soil or is it really hard by the wayside soil? And once the soil is prepared, then we can look at Alma's seed in Alma 32 and 33. Alma also speaks of that seed needing time to grow roots and being nourished. And that I call Alma's season in Alma 32 and 33. I refer to the fertilizer that Alma recommends as FDP. He calls it faith, diligence, and patience to grow roots. And then Alma says, if you don't nourish this tree, you will never partake, or this seed, you'll never partake of the fruit of the tree of life. So, Brother By the Way's opinion is, these are all part of the same metaphor, soil, seed, season, and supper, the tree of life, First Nephi 8. What I noticed one day was that Paul has all of these, soil, seed, season, and supper, in Ephesians chapter 3. That Christ may dwell in your hearts, okay, Christ is the seed that Alma refers to, by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love, that's the season, takes time to get rooted, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, for me, that's kind of nerdy, but I thought that's really cool because all of them are in there. The love of Christ is how Nephi referred to the fruit. This is the love of God, how Nephi referred to the fruit of the tree of life. So you have to be rooted, you have to be grounded, you have to have Christ dwell in your heart, seed, soil, season, and supper are all there. And I just kind of like stuff like that. Okay, if we continue... There's a note. I want to go to Ephesians chapter 5 for a second. In Ephesians chapter 5 verse 3, it says, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it be not once named among you as becometh saints. Now saints, as we know, are... Supposed to be sanctified. That's what saints mean. We become sanctified. So he goes on to talk about filthiness, foolish talking, nor jesting. Uh, no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So I have in my margin, there was a philosopher named Heraclitus, H E R A C L I T U S. He was known as the weeping philosopher. Um, he said once, that no one could live in Ephesus and not weep over its immorality. So we can read that and we can see why he would write that. I don't know if you remember back in the book of Acts when Paul went to Ephesus and he kind of was bad for, for the making little statues business. And Diana of the Ephesians, they, they all went into the big theater there, which held a couple, like 22,000 people and chanted for two hours, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And a lot of immorality went on there. And so even this philosopher in an extra biblical source outside the Bible is like, yeah, you couldn't go to Ephesus and not weep over its immorality. So Paul is going to ask the saints not to be that way, but to be the children of light as he says in verse 8, which is such a wonderful phrase. Now are ye light in the Lord? Walk as the children of light. And when we have light, we see where we're going better. Now, the last thing I wanted to touch on is the armor of God. This armor of God that's mentioned in Ephesians 6 is also mentioned in Isaiah. I think Paul knew that and was bringing out some a little bit of Isaiah to that. And also, let's see, that's Isaiah 59, where it's spoken of. But one of the things that I wanted to comment Mm -hmm. on was President Harold B. Lee. He spoke a lot about virtue. Verse 14 says, Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. And when we think about the world today and the untruth about family gender, sexual purity, this metaphor really works. Uh, girt your loins with truth. So let me quote President Harold B. Lee. Truth is to be the substance of which the girdle about your loins is to be formed if your virtue and vital strength are to be safeguarded. How can truth protect you from one of the deadliest of all evils unchastity? Remember that the Lord tells us that truth is knowledge. Quote, knowledge of things as they are, as they and as they were, and as they are to come. Section 93, verse 24 of the Doctrine of Covenants. Those who make themselves worthy and enter into the new and everlasting covenant of marriage in the temple for time and all eternity will be laying the first cornerstone for an eternal family home in the celestial kingdom, which will be forever. Their reward is to have glory added upon their heads forever and ever. These eternal truths, if you believe them with all your soul, will be as a girdle of armor about your loins to safeguard your virtue as you would protect your life. But if you allow the vain theories of men to cause you to doubt your relationship to God, the purpose of marriage, the divine purpose of marriage, and your future prospects for eternity, you are being victimized by the master of lies because all such is contrary to truth, which saves you from these perils. Now, it's kind of amazing about that. That is from october nineteen sixty two improvement era, so I think prophets knew and saw coming, and perhaps it's always been an issue of untruth about chastity and how we how we use our bodies and what we are supposed to do and supposed to become and as as a Alma might say, as he did say to his son Shiblon, bridle all your passions that ye may be filled with love. Now, I did want to make mention of one of the phrases that in our modern world, people don't like the word submit very much. In Ephesians 5, 22, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. We have to read all of it. We have to read everything, not just one verse somewhere, but what have we been taught elsewhere, and how do they all fit together. Verse 25 of Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Verse 33, Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself. And the wife see that she reverence her husband. Now reverence there... I love the word revere in there, just to to, rev- to cherish, and we should cherish each other. I have another book called The New Testament Study Guide, Start to Finish, where Tom Valletta is the general editor. And I like what I read in here about the idea of submitting. So this is from... It's in this book, but you could also find it in your April 1988 ensign. Under what circumstances does a wife submit to her husband? If a husband is a loving servant to his wife, then her submission to him is very different from what we imagine in a situation of authoritarian control. A wife would only submit to the kind of righteous leadership exemplified through complete service and sacrifice. In fact, this is not submission at all as we understand the term today, but instead an intimate trusting relationship that has at its base love, reason, discussion, and respect. Once again, that's from the I Have a Question in the April 1988 Ensign, the article written by Dennis L. Lithgow. So, when we see that word, we kind of bristle at that word unless we understand what's really going on. And remember, too, It's talking about how Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And we should love our wives as Christ loved the church, and wives should love or reverence or cherish their husbands. And proclamation on the family helps with with all of that and putting these things all together, so we understand. them Well, I hope that's helpful today, looking at the book of Ephesians. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next time.